This is Larry Leswig. Where are we going and how are we going to get there? My guest today is one of the most interesting philosophers of modern society, though he doesn't work in a philosophy department, but in a department of psychology, and his work is as deep in neuroscience as it is in the history of moral thought. Josh Green is a professor of psychology and member of the Center for Brain Science faculty at Harvard University. Much of his work has focused on the psychology and neuroscience of moral judgment, examining the interplay between emotion and reason in moral dilemmas. His more recent work studies critical features of individual and collective intelligence. Green studied philosophy at Harvard, getting his bachelor's degree in 1997, and then Princeton, his PhD in 2002. He is the author of Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them which is part of what we're going to talk with him about today. But again, only after reflecting on a more fundamental question, where are we going and how are we going to get there? Because part of what we must do in understanding what the lifeboats for our democracy could be is to be clear about what we're trying to accomplish together. What is the moral purpose of our common enterprise? Josh's book sets up the framework for that question, and we'll begin with that. And then, maybe just as important, we'll shift to the very specific questions about the strategies that might help us cure some of the diseases we understand afflict our body politics, specifically the disease of polarization within our community. And as you'll hear, Josh's work here is brilliant and transformative, and a real reason for hope that we might knit together again, or maybe for the first time, a healthier public life to make a healthier politics. Stay tuned. Joshua Green, thank you so much for talking to me. This conversation is going to span actually three stages of your career. Some places you're described as both a philosopher and a scientist, but I think what's interesting is you were a philosopher and a scientist, and and now we're really becoming something of a practitioner, um, like figuring out how do you engage in the world to, to change the things that you might have been studying as a scientist or you might have been philosophizing as a philosopher. But I don't think that the current stuff is as understandable without kind of building the path to get to to get to where you are, um, uh, and we were talking before we started this about the fact that we have a weirdly parallel um, experience of both starting as undergraduates at the Wharton School and then fleeing to philosophy. So I understand that first attraction to philosophy. But what I found really interesting in the story you tell in the book we're going to start with, um, Moral Tribes, um, is the 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 certainty and confidence that excited you as a young debater around a philosophy that's become the kind of defining um, philosophy of your way of thinking about solving these problems, utilitarianism. Um, and you describe in the beginning of this really wonderful book the, uh, the story of, of, of deciding as a debater you are going to be a utilitarian and then having a standard shtick every time you debate to be able to, to beat the unwitting or unknowing other side. Until you finally met a woman who hit you with a beautiful example. And the example was um, five people who each need a organ transplant. And should you kill one person and transplant five organs to each of these people? And you described that you were stumped. Now, the book is a great description, but I want to start by you just telling me a little bit more about what it felt like to be stumped when you (laughs) thought you had found the truth. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it was, this was in high school, and I had been debating actually since junior high. I started when I wow. was in seventh grade. So I was pretty, pretty deep into this stuff. And yeah, it's, you know, it, it kind of knocked me on my ass because I really thought I knew what I was doing. I mean, when you have something that just works and works and works, and, and, and to be a little bit, to flesh that out a little bit, the, the the idea is 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 pretty simple that you know what we should do is what's going to produce the best overall consequences that's my like value premise as we would say in Lincoln Douglas and then that's a kind of debate 
And then you just have to do the, you know, what would be empirical work today, but kind of speculation about how whatever side of the debate you're on is going to land with the best consequences. So the debate would have debates would have resolutions that you would debate, like things like uh, individual freedom is more important than national security, right? And you can see how those would <laughs> play out in various kinds of, of scenarios. And then you you know I would always argue, well, national security is ultimately for the greater good, or individual freedom is al- always for the greater good. And you know it was very explicit about that philosophy, but could argue it either way. And then yeah, this. Uh, debater. I still remember her name. Her name was Gwen Cooper. She was a really good debater, a couple of years older than me. And she knocked me on my butt uh, with, with the transplant question. And, you know, even though I knew that, you know, I'd be able to use my old tricks or not tricks, but my old strategy going forward, just I, I took it seriously as a, as a young philosopher as well. And, and I really wanted to know, okay, well, What's going on here? I felt the strong sense that it would be wrong to kidnap somebody and carve up their organs and distribute them to five people. But at the same time, the overall idea of doing as much good as possible still made a lot of sense to me. And that sent me on a path to understand the psychology behind our moral intuitions. And the hope was that if I could understand what's beneath those competing thoughts or feelings then, you know, not, not, not only would I understand what's going on in my own head better, but I, I later realized this was the fundamental tension between the two or two of the three biggest schools of philosophical thought in, in Western philosophy. That is between the Kantian deontological approach that cheers when you say, of course, you can't use someone as a means for the greater good of, of others. And the consequentialist utilitarian approach that says, look, ultimately, it's about producing good consequences. Um, so yeah, so that kind of that moment, you know, was really a defining moment for me and shaped a lot of what I did moving forward as both a, a experimental psycho- psychologist sort of in the service of philosophy and as, and as a philosopher. Yeah, and it, it was an anomaly, it seemed, that, that created a taste or a desire for you to kind of figure out what was the missing part here. And what I find striking about your work is, as someone who didn't go into psychology, who just stayed at the level of philosophy, and therefore stayed at the level of these intractable uh, debates that were never going away. You were never going to eliminate the utilitarian versus Kantian perspective. There was nothing yeah. to see there beyond just this kind of debate. What you eventually got to was a psychological insight about the nature of the way that we react to these questions that distinguished between two two ways our brain might function. You describe it as like with a camera, the automatic mode versus the manual mode. Yeah. Um, and that and that seeing this on the uh, on the table as as part of understanding what might have been going on when you reacted like that helped you unpack the problem more, right? You began to see why yeah. you could have had this intuition. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I started doing some psychology work uh that was related to this, but really sort of got more into it first as a philosopher, as, 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 as an undergrad. So I wrote a more speculative undergrad thesis. Uh, this was advised by the late, great Derek Parfit, who was just an enormous uh, hero of mine and a huge influence on me, and uh, kind of made this initial speculative argument that when we have intuitions that run counter to the greater good, that it's it's a kind of emotional response. But I didn't know, I didn't have a general theory of exactly how that worked. And, and that's still a work in progress, although a lot of progress has been made recently, uh, including by, 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 by other, other people, and maybe most notably my, my colleague down the hall, Fiery Cushman. Um, this concrete. Instead of focusing on the transplant case, I kind of got hooked on the, 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 the footbridge trolley case, right? And a lot of people are familiar with trolley dilemmas as a kind of internet meme, right? You know, we, where, where you've got the, the split in the tracks and would you kill one of these for five of these? And that's fun. I like the memes, but it actually, it doesn't convey what was interesting about the science, that the scientific interest and philosophical interest was really about the contrast between the kind of case where people are okay with sacrificing one for five. This is a case like the trolley is headed towards five people, and then you can hit a switch that will turn it away from the five, but there's one person on the tracks there, and most people say that that's fine. And then the case, which is nicely matched, the footbridge case, where there's the, the, the you, have, you, you and the other person, uh, nowadays I'll say with a big backpack, the other person has uh, on the footbridge, 
the, the trolley is headed towards five people, and the only way you can save those five people is to push the other person off the footbridge and use that person as a trolley stopper uh, in a way that would greatly offend uh, Immanuel Kant and among most people. Um, and uh, and that seems wrong to most people, and I, I felt that as well. I only encountered those cases in college uh, after my high school debate episode. And so I thought, okay, this is really now well defined. Like, what is the difference between killing one to save five in the in the in the switch case versus in the case with 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 with, with the footbridge, and uh, and then this is where both there's a kind of neuroscientific track to this and a behavioral scientific track. So. Initially using brain imaging, I and my, my colleagues at Princeton, uh, my, my postdoc advisor, Jonathan Cohen, started using brain imaging, having people think about these kinds of moral dilemmas while they're in the scanner. And to make a long story short, you know, we, we saw evidence that was consistent with my initial hunch. That is that you're in, that people are having a kind of emotional reaction to cases like the Footbridge case which you can see in parts of the brain, most notably the amygdala and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, and we can say more about that later. And then having a kind of application of more explicit rules or conscious reasoning in 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 uh in the other case uh in in the in in the switch case those initial studies really kind of reading tea leaves with the brain imaging stuff and and other studies since then have done a much better job of of nailing things down and really the the strongest studies i think have been done by other people looking at patients with different kinds of brain damage where you see really mm. clear whopping effects. So if someone has damage to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which for now we'll just say this is related to the emotional response that makes you say, ah, don't push the guy off the footbridge, those people are much more likely to say that it's okay to push the guy off the footbridge if they have damage to that emotion-related part of the brain. You, you see uh, the opposite effect uh, for people who have damage to the hippocampus, which is we think necessary for a kind of imagining the whole episode and also thinking about it in a more what you call model-based way where you're thinking about cause and effect explicitly those people have the, who have that kind of damage they're much like more likely to say oh it's just wrong and and go by a feeling responding to the action rather than kind of imagining the whole thing uh and 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 reasoning about it and uh there have been a couple of other studies that have nicely dissociated other parts of the of, of, mm. of the neural circuitry. So that that story is has come, become increasingly solid and well refined in terms of like w there are different neural systems that are on opposite sides of this push pull, and one of them, you know, there's emotion in in some sense on both sides because any kind of value judgment is going to involve some kind of affect. But the the strong emotional response that you see in this classic. Uh, alarm bell kind of system, the, the amygdala, um, that that pretty clearly is on the side of the, the feeling that says don't push the guy off the footbridge, right? And then it still raises the question of why? What, what is it about the case? Like, what is it about the footbridge case that triggers that response? And um, what we've learned is that it's, it seems to be two things that interact with each other. One is pushing. So like people feel more strongly negatively about it if you're pushing the person off the footbridge versus dropping them through a, a, a trap door that you can hit with a switch. Right. Um, and and also, you know, and if, and if you're pushing even with a pole as opposed to your hands like that, those those two are the same. And then it has something to do also with whether or not it is the harm occurs as a side effect versus as something purposeful as a means to an, an end. Um, and those two things kind of come together to produce that negative reaction. The other big piece of this is that it's if it's active rather than passive, if you allow someone to fall off the footbridge instead of pushing them, then that feels very different. So we have a pretty good idea of the sort of situational factors that 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 contribute to this effect. And I think what it really comes down to is does this does this resemble a prototypical act of, of violence, like you know, hitting somebody or something like that, where it's direct intentional and active, right? That that's kind of almost the definition of something that's that's violent or at least prototypically violent. So that was a long sort of description of years of research kind of working out those those, those mechanics. And then my hope was that I, you know, I, I would sort of take take those ideas and say, okay, this is what's going on in our intuitions. And then here's how this should affect our philosophy. And uh, 
I believe in the arguments that I put into that book and some related papers, but um, not everybody is convinced uh, to put it to put it mildly. But that was, you know, a, some of the interest was just in the basic science, and some of it was to try to move the philosophical discussion along. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah. Okay, but uh, but what's important about this, I I, I thought was um, that these the intuitions around the footbridge are intuitions that are closer to our normal moral reactions to normal behavior that people have in the world. Um, and they become automatic. They become the kind of thing that you learn as a well-acculturated person. Um, if you don't understand, you're not supposed to push somebody um, or right. intentionally hurt, then you're just a sociopath. Um, yeah. um, as opposed to the more abstract um, activities, you know, pushing a button that might have a certain kind of effect, which is something you've got to think through. You've got to kind of reason through to have an understanding of that. And this tracks this what you call dual mode um, conception of, um, of of reason that's going on here. Like, like psychologically, we develop two different ways to be able to address moral problems, and one of them is fast and one of them is slow. And and part of that difference is what's explaining this difference in results. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that that's basically right. I'll make a couple of caveats to that. One is that I actually think cost-benefit reasoning is ubiquitous, right? But it's just not specific to, to, to morality. So I think people will use cost-benefit reasoning all the time in, in, you know, in, in navigating social situations or even moral situations. I mean, you know, well, seven of us want to go here and two of us want to go there, so we'll go with the majority or something like that. And it's not about, you know, pushing somebody off a footbridge or something like that. So it's it doesn't have to be very reasonish reasoning. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. just sort of an explicit understanding of the situation. Um, the other is actually, there's been recent research suggesting that the intuitive response is not necessarily faster. <laughs> that as people have done more and more experiments trying to look at reaction times and putting people under, you know, cognitive load to try to sort of block the intuition and stuff, it's 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 actually not clear that the fast response is is mm -hmm. is is faster. I think the the best way to put it is the way that I mentioned before my colleague Fiery Cushman put it in terms of what what he and other other researchers this is originally coming out of a computer science tradition describe as model based versus model free learning. So with model free what you're doing is attaching a value to an action in a particular context, right? So uh like if you're if you're if you're driving along your normal route and then today you need to go someplace else but out as a out of a matter of habit you turn left at the fire station instead of right you already have an intuition that says ah in this situation turn right do this right habit um or you can have a kind of, of of map where you understand where you're going and why you're going there and what steps you need to take. It's more it's goal directed, right? Um, that's probably really more of the of 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 the split, but it's not necessarily that one comes out faster. Although it does seem to be more emotional. That is, uh, when people are you know reacting to things like pushing people off of footbridges, you see. Uh, skin conductance responses, a little bit of sweaty, sweaty, sweaty palms that you can detect electrically, and 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 things like that. So maybe those are those are sort of recent developments and nuances, but I think the the basic idea has held up pretty well. And and, and do these model free or model based responses? I, I want to make sure we get the link back to the first stage in your argument in the book, which is yeah to identify two different kinds of moral problems. And one type of moral problem is the me versus us problem, mm. which societies, if they're societies, are pretty good at solving. Like you develop a set of morals so that people can solve the me versus us problem, or the society can. And the second is the kind of us versus them problem where we can understand why we don't actually have a lot of good experience for solving the us versus them problem. And when we do try to, we don't do it well, um, typically. Um, and, so, and so that, in the us versus them, it becomes the... The, the less automatic uh, uh, has to kick in. And if you apply the automatic intuition to that, then it, it can produce crazy, right? Is that? Right. Yeah. So this is, this is now we're stepping back to yes. much broader. So we're kind of using the footbridge and the trolley dilemmas as a kind of fruit fly. And what those are useful for is having these nice, tight, 
matched probes where we can sort of say, what's the, the little, the smallest thing that makes a difference in terms of activating one, you know, network within the brain versus the other, right? Now we're looking back, we're stepping back and looking at kind of morality and human societies overall and saying, okay, how, how does morality work in, in general? And, and what, what is it designed to do? So what I would say, this is not unique to me, but not everybody agrees with this, that morality is fundamentally about cooperation. That is, the reason why morality evolved is because individuals can survive better working as a team than they can survive separately, right? If I've got food this week and you don't, we both, and, and sometimes it's the other way around, we both survive by sharing, right? Um, and, you know, that taking that little familiar example and scaling it up to everything people do, we're a super social species that survives through cooperation. Okay, but uh, how do we get to the point where we are cooperative? How does that work? And the short answer is that we have feelings that guide us towards more cooperative behaviors. And you can think of these as emotional carrots and sticks that we apply to ourselves and that we apply to other people. So if I have a positive, warm feeling about you, you're my friend and I'm happy to share my food, that's a kind of carrot that's motivating me, right? Um, and, if, uh, and, and if you share your food with me, then you have my gratitude and that's a kind of emotional carrot that's rewarding mm -hmm. you. If uh, someone is not very cooperative, they themselves might feel guilty or ashamed, and that's a kind of emotional stick that motivates oneself. And if someone else is being uncooperative, then you might be angry or even disgusted with them, and those are emotional sticks that motivate other people. So all of these seemingly unrelated emotional things, they're all about getting us in the upper right corner of the payoff matrix, you know, where we're both cooperating and doing doing better, right? Actually, upper left is how it's upper typically left, arranged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, there are always questions about, well, what are the terms of those cooperations? Do we live in a highly you know, a communal society where it's one for all and all for one? Or do we live in a society where we mostly fend for ourselves but agree to stay out of each other's way and not lie and steal to each other from, from, from each other, right? And there are questions about different roles that people play in society by age, by, by gender slash sex, and so on and so forth. And all of those things shape our intuitions and our feelings about how things ought to be, right? That's the sort of core of everyday morality, of having feelings that enable us to work as a group and, and cooperate and survive better than we could on our own. So that's kind of going from me to us, right? Right. And what's distinctive about that, I just want to emphasize one point that I know you believe, but is important to have on the table. What's, what's interesting about that is that different societies are distinctive in the way in which they, they solve that kind of problem. We can have overall ways of describing what makes them different. But what's interesting is people within those societies feel certain things as natural that people from outside those societies look at it and say, this is just crazy, or like, how can you possibly think of it like that? Yes, exactly, right. And so, and that's when you get the us versus them problem. Yes. So the, the way I sort of describe this in the book is the, the me versus us problem is, is something that's referred to as the, the tragedy of the commons, right? The classic mm -hmm. example here is you have a bunch of herders who are on a common pasture, and if everybody, uh, you know, grazes, you know, or, or raises more and more animals, then there's nothing left for anybody on the pasture, and all the animals die, and that's the tragedy, right? And then what, what I call... Uh, the tragedy of common sense morality is the higher level tragedy of different tribes having different moral systems, right? So my little allegory for this right. in the book is uh, you have these tribes that live on the op different sides of this forest, and some are more individualistic where everybody has their own herds, and others are more collective where they all have one big herd, and they have different attitudes towards outsiders and threats and punishments and things like that. And then... Uh, you know, one day the fo the forest burns down and the rains come and there's this nice pasture in the middle and all the tribes converge with their different ideas about, you know, what role should women have? And, you know, is it okay to, to, to kill people who try to, you know, to take your stuff as opposed to just giving them a warning and things mm -hmm. like that? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the, the modern world where we have all of the, our tribes coming together, living in a common place where we can make each other's lives better or make each other's lives miserable. And the key point bringing this back to the psychology, as you said, is that 
more or less within a tribe, we can all be in harmony and, and, and have expectations about who's supposed to do what and not do what to whom. When tribes come together, now our intuitions are, are, are off, right? And, you know, people like you and me will have very different intuitions about whether or not it's okay to be gay or trans than someone in a more traditional society, either here in the U.S. or on the other side of the world, or about, you know, other things uh, mm-hmm. related to uh, shared benefits and, 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 and threats and punishments and such. So... When we're dealing with the modern world, with tribes that are at, that are that are in conflict, that's when we have to, I argue, put our intuitions aside, or not completely aside, but at least not trust them so readily, because we have different intuitions and they can't all be right. And then, and then the book makes an argument about, well, what would a meta morality look <laughs> like? That is, if morality is what governs life within a tribe, a meta morality. Is, is really the project of enlightenment philosophy, of trying to have more general universal principles that would transcend the values and limitations of more traditional tribal moralities that we find around the world. Right. And, and you've got a wonderful account of what you, you're calling the common currency, which will feel utilitarian, but you describe it as a deep pragmatism that could be used to guide uh, these um, conflicts that aren't appropriately guided just by intuition. And I, I think the account here is perfectly, uh, really compelling and, and convincing, and, and, and especially when it's layered onto the psychology, it seems really wonderful. But what I want to emphasize in what you've described is the incredible empathy you evince for these different cultures of value. I mean, what you start with is a recognition, not necessarily that, you know, the Arab culture is right or wrong, but understand how it could be a distinctive culture from, you know, the Anglo-American culture and that it's developed to solve a, the same set of problems. We are we are all humans. We're all trying to have kids and be happy and like, you know, be able to not starve. We're all doing the same thing, but we've developed very different ways to do it. And that's what's accounting for this tragedy of uh, the common sense morality. Yeah, no, I, I, I thank you for for saying so. But I mean, I've certainly felt that shift as I went from that being that high school debater to getting deeper into the the psychology, both as a kind of cognitive scientist and as a cultural psychologist. That is, yeah, I think I look at other cultures, even ones whose practices, in some sense, I might find uh, you know morally repugnant. I still, as I think you put it very well, that we're all. Humans trying to solve the problem of human existence yeah. uh, un, un, under different conditions. Uh, and so I don't look at societies that do things that I think are you know terrible, like cutting people's hands off for stealing and things like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. as you know sociopathic. instead, I, I see it as well. You know, that's one way to solve the problem with some serious costs, but maybe also some benefits, right? And and then ascending to that higher level is exactly about asking those questions. Say, well, in the modern world, in the situation where we found f- find ourselves, what would have the most benefits and the least mm-hmm. costs mm-hmm. O- o- overall, right? Okay, now this is significant for, um, you know, I'm really grateful for the chance to talk to you in general. But the particular reason I wanted to talk to you is as your work relates to the problem of polarization and negative um, partisanship that is, of course, so rife within our political society right now. Um, Because what's striking about your approach to that problem, too, is it's also empathetic um, to the differences. Like, you're you're not looking at a set of values and saying, these are bad values and we have to figure out how to change them. Um, through even through reason, how to change them. Instead, you're gonna we're gonna talk about the techniques that you're using for making it so these different moralities can kind of live together and, and not necessarily have to kill each other or you know, banish each other or something like that. But what's striking about it is it, it builds on this the sense that there that there was a common sense morality in each of these cultures that now conflicts. And I wanna I wanna first ask you to the extent to which you think that they are, you know, as stable and natural in the way that we might imagine, you know, Arab culture from American culture? Or do you think that they're more artificially constructed um, in the way that we might imagine, like, campaigns desiring that we produce people who hate other people? Yeah. So that you're talk- we're talking now specifically about, like, 
political polarization yes. in the yeah. U.S., right? Yeah. yeah, my view is that I think the fundamental core difference, and this is controversial, and some people will be uh, you know not like this, but I think the, the core challenge that's happening now in the United States and other countries is about the size of the us. That is, there are two ways that you can think of America. You can think of it as this is a homeland for a certain set of predominantly white Christian people, traditionally led by men, living according to certain cultural norms and culturally specific ideals, right? Or you can think of the United States as about a set of more universal ideals that are really open to anybody, independent of their ethnicity, personal personal history, right? And I and and the the the, the Democratic Party represents that broader, more inclusive vision, where you know would say so you know a, a, a Muslim woman from Pakistan can be just as much of an American as a white guy from Iowa whose family has been there for six generations, right? And there are other people whose view is more, you know, the, the United States, we can have some guests as long as people are well-behaved. But if this country ends up being majority non-white and non-Christian, that's not my country anymore. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not America. The real America is a certain people, blood and soil, right? Now, I I think that, you, as you'd guess, my vision aligns with, with, with the more liberal, in, 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 inclusive vision. But I don't think that the people on the other side are necessarily evil for having that 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 purpose right and for having that 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 view and we all have our more narrow circles for 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 some purposes right that is imagine you know you have your home where you live with your family and if people just showed up at your door and said hi we want to live here you have a nice house or whatever <laughs> you have a nice property you know my reaction and most people's reaction is look i'm sorry for what you've been through but this is my house it's for me and my family uh, you know, uh, right? And yeah, you and, and me, and, my, and, my wife would probably say, "Sure, come in. You can have the room upstairs." <laughs> yeah, but 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 um, but I think that a lot of Americans feel that they feel more of America as the home for them and their their extended family of Americans who resemble them religiously mm-hmm. and culturally, and in you know, in the same way that I don't think I'm an evil person for caring about my family and my personal property mm-hmm. more than I care about the, the, the well-being of other humans in general. I, I, I disagree with it. It's not my vision, but, but, but I get it. Then more recently, as you alluded to, you have this, you know, just flood of misinformation and conspiracy theories, which take people who might have a more tribalistic outlook but then what those lies and, and, and volumes of misinformation do is, is transform a, what we call a bias in their values into something that's incontrovertible. Well, clearly Joe Biden hates America and wants to destroy it. Clearly all those liberals in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, hate America and want to destroy it or, 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 or the other way around. Right. And, you know, if, if, if Biden really did steal the election, then he should be opposed. Right. Mm-hmm. So so now you've you, you've got this difference in values about the size of the us and then the political elites especially on the on the right but some on the left as well have taken that difference and exploited it and turned it into uh these hardened battle lines where people are living in different you know uh, in, in different universes in terms of what what they take to be just sort of ground truth ground truth basic facts about the world okay but but i want to make sure that we are are fully accounting for what drives this perverse dynamic? I mean, so you just you say political elites, and no doubt the political elites are eager to do what they can. Yeah, but it feels to me like there's also a pretty fundamental business model. I want you to go back to your first days in the Wharton School. Right. <laughs> there's a business model here <laughs> yeah. that profits from turning us into ignorant people who hate each other. I mean, we're more engaged if we're engagement marketing and social media, yes. and you know when. When Fox News decided it would become Fox News, it was because Roger Ailes believed that if they focused on just the conservative part of America and they spoke to that base, they would build a more loyal following. So the business model of being a successful uh, cable news station was different from the business model of a broadcast news station. So this business model, unfortunately for us, plays into lots of psychological weaknesses we have as humans. To yep, turn us yep. into the worst versions of ourselves, because that happens to make them the most money. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you're, and you're, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I know you're, you're, you're far more expert than I am on exactly how this, how this plays out. So I defer to you if you want to do a, f- a further sort of uh, d- dive on that. But yes, I think we, we are, th- there are these tribal antagonism amplifiers that are, as you said, built into the business model of, of, of the, the, the media that we consume. And it's, it's a big problem. <laughs> okay. Now I want to shift to the really interesting part of what you're doing now. So as I said at the beginning, you're a philosopher and then scientist and now practitioner because what you've um, part of your work is developing and deploying techniques that are designed to um, address some of this negative partisanship or this poisonous polarization. Um, yep. and, and one point to notice from the very beginning is that these techniques are not about getting people to read a book. They're not about like engaging with an arg- in an argument with them about how they should think. Um, even though, you know, you could say that maybe these are problems that require what you call manual morality and that it requires courage and persistence. The kind of persistence or the kind of engagement that you're, you're deploying here is really one operating at a completely different level of like awareness, right? Yep. Yep. And in fact, it was a real sort of shift in, in, in strategy coming off of of, of moral tribes. So in, in some ways, you know, in many ways I was really happy with the book, but in other ways I was kind of disappointed in retrospect, it kind of seems inevitable, but you know, the structure of the book was, is roughly here's how human social and moral behavior and thinking works and feeling works. Right. And wouldn't it be great if we had a moral philosophy that could enable us to see, see what's going on and take that understanding of what's going on and allow us to, to, to have a kind of metamorality, which I was defending as a version of, of utilitarianism or consequentialism. And then with that in mind, you know, how do we move forward? And, you know, the, the book had its successes, but it didn't change the world. And, and, and it was, and, and I thought, okay, well, if doing the science and integrating the science in the service of a shared philosophy didn't take off yet, maybe in the next century, who knows, right? What if I just try to get at the problem more directly? Take our understanding of, of human nature as described in the first third or so of the book and just say, well, well, how would I just directly try to create environments, interventions, systems that would work with that, right? Yes. And 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 the, the core idea is that, you know, we are a cooperative species and we cooperate in ways that are driven by our, our emotions. And the way that our emotions get tuned is through our cooperative experiences, right? So if you, you know, if you live in a highly communal culture, like uh, the Lamalara who hunt whales uh, t- t- together as groups, you're going to have very communal kinds of intuitions. And if you, uh, if, 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 if you uh, live in another tribe where people hunt uh, as individuals and don't share very much, you're going to have different intuitions. So what I wanted is, how do you give people a cooperative experience across the line of division. And critically, not just cooperative in the sense that it's not antagonistic, like having a dialogue, but cooperative in the biological sense of mutually beneficial cooperation, where we both end up better in material terms as a result of our interaction, gains of trade, positive sum. And so with my grad student, uh, Evan DeFilippis, we were thinking, okay, well, what how can we create cooperation and how can we do it in a way that's that's scalable? There's this great Heineken commercial, which some people have seen, which uh, they bring in people with political differences to put together some IKEA furniture, right? And it's sort of a classic kind of challenging <laughs> yes. cooperative task, right? And, and, you know, that's a nice idea, but that's very hard to scale, right? Mm-hmm. So what we did instead was we created this quiz game where Republicans and Democrats play as partners. Um, and another thing that's nice about the quiz game is that it allows you to kind of play with your play the game with your political identity, so that the hope is that uh, the the goodwill that comes out of it can gen, can generalize. So if you want, I can I can kind of walk through the mechanics Please, of, yeah, of that really and great. how it's really worked. Interesting. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So okay. So here's so here's what we did. So the way it works is uh, we recruit people online. They just know they're going to play a game, and uh, they they. Uh, fill out some information about themselves. What's your favorite color? And do you like the mountains or the beach? And uh, and also, you know, are you a Republican, Democrat? Who'd you vote for in the last election? And then you get paired up with somebody and you do a little get to know you session um, where you learn, you know, about their favorite color and stuff, but also about their political party. And then you take a quiz on your partner so that we know and you know and everybody knows 
who's who. You're playing with a Republican or a Democrat, right? And on all of this is happening while people are connected by chat. So they're not seeing each other, but they're, they're, they're chatting with each other. And uh, in the interesting experimental condition, you have a Republican and Democrat play together. These are randomized control trials. So it, 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 in the control condition, you would either be playing someone like you, two Democrats or, or, or two Republicans. Um, so you know your partner, you've gotten to know each other a little bit, and then the game starts. And it eases in with uh, kind of innocuous questions like, what state is Mount Rushmore in? Um, and so you chat with your partner. Oh, I think it's North Dakota. Oh, I think it's South Dakota. Okay, chat, chat. We'll go with your answer. Oh, look, we were right. And the, the key is that you, you, have to, you and your partner have to agree on an answer. You have to agree on the right answer in order to get your points, right? So you're in the same boat, and if you both get it right, by submitting that answer, then you get your money. Um, and, you know, we do a few of those kind of uh, general questions. Then uh, in the second round, Evan did this fantastic research where he, you know, looked at Twitter threads and Reddit threads and figured out what do Republicans know that Democrats don't and mm -hmm. vice versa mm -hmm. with that. But that's not explicitly about politics. Um, so question like this, you know, what's the name of the family on the show? Duck Dynasty. I, I've, I've met maybe one liberal who knew the answer to mm -hmm. this question, but a lot of Republicans know the answer to that one. The answer is Robins, Robertson, by the way. Um, and then ask questions about things like shows like Stranger Things, which liberals are much more likely to watch, or uh, questions about like flavors of St. Croix seltzer and stuff like that. <laughs> um, it, 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 by the way, it really does like track with your stereotypes, but we didn't just generate these based on our stereotypes. Evan did the research, and then we pilot tested these things. And it turns out Republicans really do like bass fishing more than Democrats and, and mm -hmm. things like that. But anyway, so we have those questions. And, and in that second phase, there's nothing controversial, but now we have a kind of complementarity where, you know, each side knows something that the other side doesn't, or more often that happens. And so you start to really kind of appreciate the fact that your partner culturally different from you if you're in that mixed condition. And then in the third phase, after we've kind of eased you in, you like the game, you like your partner, you're winning, you're high-fiving and fist-bumping by chat, uh, then you get these politically charged questions like, you know, what percentage of gun deaths in the U.S. involve assault-style weapons? And Democrats think it's like 30%, 50%. Demo uh, Republicans think it's like 1%, 2%. And in fact, in that case, the Republicans are right. It's actually like 1% or 2%. Democrats wildly overestimate the proportion of deaths, gun deaths that are, that are assault style weapons because they're so well publicized. But then, uh, you know, if you ask about rates of crime among immigrants, Republicans think it's sky high because that's what they see in their media. And Democrats think, no, it's not. And it turns out immigrants to the U.S. actually commit crimes at lower rates than, than, than native born Americans. Right. Mm -hmm. So now you have questions like this where both sides get to be right, but they've already built up a kind of trust with each other and trust with the game. And, you know, they'll, they'll say things like, well, one of us is wrong, but I don't know who. And uh, we went with my answer last time. So I guess we'll go with yours. Or if you're sure, we'll go with your answer. Right. And, you know, they're working together not to like resolve their political differences. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, it's not about changing people's policy right. ideas. It's right. about having this cooperative experience where you're working together to solve a common problem. You're both end up being better off uh, a, a, as a result. And it's not so much the answers that matter as it is that the fact that you're, you're, you're working together and trusting each other. And, so that's, and the, the consequence yeah. of that, I mean, what's really striking right. about it is it has a real effect on what I think of as the negative um, partisanship, you have different scales from different ways of measuring and describing yeah. it. And not yeah. just at the moment. I mean, even four months afterwards, you you still see this kind of difference in attitude. So yeah. why don't you catch yeah. that out? Because that's really the... Yeah, so that's right. And so all of, you know, the purpose of all of this is to see if it really moves the needle. And to our delight, it moves the needle even more than we expected to, or more durably than we expected it to. So we use a couple, we have a lot of different measures, but the, the two main ones we use, one is what's called a feeling thermometer, which is often, it's been used by pollsters since the late 70s as a general, like, just how do you feel about this person or this group. So zero to 100, 100 is the warmest, zero is the coldest. How warm or cold do you feel about Democrats or Republicans? And we, we do that before the game to get a baseline reading. We do it after the game, immediately after, to see if there's a change. And we're doing this in both the control condition, of course, and in the mixed condition. Um, and then we follow up the next day, the next week, the next month, and, and the farthest out we've gone is four months uh, and we found, as you said, that, you know, in, in some of our experiments, we see that playing this game for less than an hour 
people have less negative attitudes four, four months later. We've also, we also do an economic measure where we ask people, how would you divide $100 between a random Republican and a random Democrat, not your partner, but someone else? And we say, you know, we're, we're actually going to do this. If you get chosen, we're going to go with the division that you propose right now. And so people will either, you know, do the tribal thing and say, no, I'm giving it all to, you know, the Democrat because I'm a Democrat. Or they'll give like a little token amount to the other side. Or they'll do a 50-50 split. And so it's really about how often do people do the 50-50 splits. And uh, repeatedly we find that four months out, people are making more equitable splits uh, in this economic decision as a result of, of playing the game. And when I say playing the game, what I mean is playing with an out-party partner, someone who's different <laughs> from you. This is the difference between that and the control condition where you're, where people play with someone who's who's just like them. And then, you know, you might wonder, well, a couple of things to add. One is we, we also recently tested effects on what are n- now called anti-democratic attitudes. Like, would you vote for a politician who refused to accept unfavorable election outcomes or is or is promoting gerrymandering or removing polling stations in, in enemy territory. And and we haven't done that long term, but immediately after we find that the, the people who play the game with an out-party partner are less likely to s- support those kinds of anti-democratic behaviors or, 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 or candidates. The other thing to add is what's going on psychologically, right? Like what is it about the experience of cooperating with the other person that, that kind of makes it go? Um, what's the, what's the sort of special, in, special sauce, secret ingredient. And it, the number one thing seems to be mutual respect that, you know, we ask people, did you respect your partner? Did you feel they respected you? Did you have valuable contributions? Do you feel that they did that cluster of questions? The, the more positive answers to those predicts these 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 effects uh, immediately and down the road of having the less negative attitudes towards the other side. And I think this you know relates to a lot of what's been going on in in the economy for the last four decades or so of people feeling, especially on the Republican side, like not respected and they're no longer on top of the world they were or the way they were maybe in the 50s. and And that seems to be the kind of key key component. So that's that's what we've done with our research so far. Uh, our ho- Hopefully our, our paper on this will be out soon. And then we have some efforts moving forward in terms of trying to get a version of the quiz game out and in, out into the real world. But I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll pause there and, and, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. It's, it's incredibly encouraging because one of the themes that's coming out of the conversations we're having in this series is that we've got to identify the strategies that um, can work against the poisonous influences. I mean, you know, ideally we'd like to just end the poisonous influences, but that's not going to happen, especially in the United States where we've got a First Amendment that, um, you know, will restrict the government's ability to do anything. So if we're going to have the poisonous influences, what can we do? And so this is, uh, when I first read about this idea, I thought, yeah, that's crazy. That might be an effect immediately, but you can't imagine having a long-term effect. But the fact that it does shows that here's a really simple exercise, and it is kind of conceptually like an exercise, right? Like, yeah. you, know, you should be walking 10,000 steps a day, or you should be like one hour, um, you know, I don't know how regularly you'd have to do it to kind of counteract the effect of uh, these business models that want to point you into different directions. One thing we're doing, and I'm really eager to experiment in, in this way with what you're doing, is we're, we're building um, a deliberation platform that um, is a scalable platform in the sense that you bring people in in groups of six to ten, but you can have you know a million groups at the same time. So it could be as many number of people de- deliberating as you want. It's a little bit Jim Fishkin-ish asking that you've given people information up front and we're committed to doing it in video form because nobody reads anymore. Um, and then they deliberate about these issues and then, it, then you've pulled them at the beginning, you've pulled them at the end. We don't say we're doing a del- deliberative poll because we're not worried about creating perfectly representative random samples, but we are interested in making sure that the groups are diverse. Um, and what we're finding similarly is that people's experience having deliberated with each other is uh, edifying. It's like it's curative, like it brings them to a place where they weren't before. We, we haven't the numbers to be able to test the way you've tested it. But what I would really love to see is if we started this by having them first play the game yeah. and then do the deliberation, like 
what would the what would the two together be? I mean, I think both of yeah. us have the intuition it would be even better. Um, but it would be interesting to test because obviously, you know, intuition isn't enough. Yeah, no, and that's exactly how I'm thinking about it. You know, people sometimes I often have to clarify like we have these political controversial questions in the game, but the point is not to get people to agree about guns yes. or, or, or immigration. The point is to have the politics salient while people are having this cooperative experience. And then people ask me, okay, but then how is this ever going to result in the kind of structural change that we really need? And my answer to that is we can't even have to, – to be – to have that policy conversation in an honest, open open-minded way where we're looking to solve the problem instead of to score points, you have to first solve the animosity problem. Yes. It's kind of like we think of sports as competitive, but sports are actually cooperative. That mm -hmm. is, we have all of this cooperative or, or, or apparatus all around the soccer game. And then within the soccer game, you have these two different countries or teams playing against each other. But the overall thing is cooperative. And then we have that competition, that friendly competition in the middle. What we, what, 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 what we need first is to, you know, you, you can't negotiate with people who are evil, right? So you have to first, I think, diffuse that animosity, and then you can have a meaningful conversation about, you know, a, 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 about solving policy questions. And so I, I like the way that you suggested kind of encapsulating that with first having something that's really more about just establishing trust and establishing yes. mutual respect, uh, and then we can start talking policy. My, um, I kind of... Inspiration and collaborator Tim Phillips, who, who's the CEO of this uh, organization called Beyond Conflict, has this uh, strategy where he's had people on opposite sides of a, of, of a conflict first mm. talk about someone else's conflict, mm -hmm. right? So like he's had a group in Latin America dealing with their own problem say – Let's 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 look at the what's going on in 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 South Africa or, or or Northern Ireland, and they can see each other going through this exercise. That's just an exercise, mm -hmm. but seeing how they think and seeing how they reason, and then that like opens up the space for them to have a more open and trusting conversation about what's what, what's actually dividing them themselves. Then there's the problem of let's say they're all they've all become closer and more reasonable, but the constituents that they represent hate each other just as much, right? Then then you need to think how do you how do you create that experience on a wider scale, right? And that's that brings us back to why, you know, we wanted to do things mm -hmm. that were were more scalable. But yes, I think that there's a kind of sequence here of like first establishing basic trust in humanity and respect and then you can start having those those more integrative problem-solving conversations. But what this still misses, and I just wonder whether you have an intuition about how to solve this part of the problem too, is that, you know, when the soccer teams play, they play on the same field. They have a common conception of reality. They know yeah. what the ball looks like and they know when it goes yeah. through the goal. And yeah. increasingly, we live in different epistemological worlds. Like, we don't even understand the same facts. And we're not even told the same facts. I mean, I, there's great work showing that, you know, a, a villain for the left, people like the Koch brothers, are invisible to people on the right because they're never spoken of in like on like Fox News. Um, why would you? Um, and so, so the, the solution you've got um, and the solution I've got doesn't yet deal with the problem of how do we get people to the same place so that they're even knowing the same facts to have a conversation about so that when they apply their different intuitions about how to solve them, they're yeah. even solving the same problem. So I think, I think there are two different strategies here, and they're not mutually exclusive. One is to think that to solve the kind of information problem, the epistemological problem, you need an epistemological solution. You need to have a shared news source. You need to do fact-checking and correcting and things like that. Another approach is to say all of this is ultimately driven by an underlying kind of animosity and disrespect and distrust. And if you actually solve that mm. more basic affective problem, then the other stuff would, 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 would actually sort itself out, that people would be curious. I mean, think about it. Like if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, it is not hard at all to find out what the other side is saying if you want to know. Mm -hmm. It's just that people don't want to know, right? And if they hear something, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't want to believe it. They want to rationalize it away as, as, as quickly as possible. Another way to think about it is, you know, this goes with something you said earlier about like countering the, the, all of the misinformation that, 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 that's out there. 
in 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 describing the quiz game, so often how I've pitched it is, uh, you know, what's the opposite of of a of a of a Russian government troll farm or you know a, 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 a homegrown one here in the U.S. Right? You might think that the opposite of falsehoods is truth. That is, it's fact checking, right? I, you know, as the famous line, right? You know, the, the 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 lie has gone around the world three times while the truth is still lacing up its shoes. Fact checking is is you know it's good, it's important. People should do it, but it's no match for falsehood because <laughs> right. Um, I view misinformation and 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 subscribing to it and 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 believing it in it without curiosity as more of the opposite of cooperation. It's a kind of defection. Mm-hmm. It's it's more of a middle finger than a kind of epistemic conclusion, right? So the, the idea then is that the, the opposite of lies is not so much truth as it is cooperation because mm-hmm. lies is really a form of defection, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, so I guess I'm pushing more on this strategy of if we can feel that we're on the same team and trust each other and respect each other, even if we still have disagreements, then we'll, we'll seek out sources of shared information. We'll want to know the truth. We'll want to know when we're getting things wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and to go from there. But, you know, I also think no one really knows the answer. These are really hard problems. And we, you know, even if that's my, like, Number one approach: We we want to be trying everything that has a as, as a hope of working and and trying things in in tandem, as you suggest. Right, and and I think that the key is is when people can see the other side not as reptiles but as humans. Um, yeah. And so when you think like, what does the conservative think? You're not thinking the conservative. You're thinking, what does Joe think? Because I met Joe in one of these conversations, and you know, I don't agree with him, but he's not a, he's not a terrible person. He's got a couple kids. He's, you know, wants to go to college, the kids to go to college. So it's like turning us into, you know, who we were, I think, before we had all these mechanisms for pulling us apart. And yeah. there are a lot of strategies. And, and what you've described here is really, really an important addition to this. Oh, well, thanks. Um, yeah. I, well, I appreciate, yeah. This go, has no, been, an, uh, I, I just wanted to say, um, Thank you again. Um, this has been an extremely valuable conversation in addition to the series that we have here. Um, I, I guess I'd like to just ask, like, where do you, where should we look for the next place that this appears, that the, I mean, this version of your work, this intervention for, um, for bringing people uh, together through this kind of gaming? Are we going to see platforms deploy it? Or are we going to see political parties trying to engage it in certain districts? Yeah, well, so th- this is what I've been working on for most of the last year. So uh, with an organization called the Global Development Incubator, uh, which is a social impact tech incubator, we are working on building software that's more robust and that we can deploy more widely. My initial vision and hope for this would be that the quiz game would be something that we just put out on the internet, that people can play the way they play all kinds of, you know, trivia games, um, but one where you're paired up with other people. Turns out, you know, that's going to be, uh, if, especially if we're having uh, incentives and prizes, that could, becomes a big security challenge. And so we've decided to focus more on institutional channels. So we're, we're organizational channels. We're working on, we're talking with various businesses about having a version of the quiz game at work where, pe- where, where businesses that are feeling that there's a kind of tension at work. We, we had a conversation with folks from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce who said the number, the one and number two questions they get from their businesses these days are, what do we do about AI? <laughs> that's number one. And number two, what do we do about this creeping polarization that's getting into the workplace? You know, someone posts yep. something on, on Slack and boom, everything bl- blows up. So we're, we're, we're looking to offer a kind of solution to businesses, but also, you know, to, 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 you know, campuses where there's real political division, possibly the military, one that I hadn't even thought of before we started this, libraries actually could be a, a way to, to bring people together with this. And then I just got back from a trip to Israel uh, where there was a lot of interest in the quiz game as a way of uh, having greater uh, integration and inclusion for Arab Israelis hmm. in the Jewish-Israeli-dominated uh, w- workplace, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I, I hope that we'll be uh, we'll, we'll be doing a, 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 a Israel and maybe ultimately Israel Palestine version of this. You know, the situation is very different there. Huge power asymmetry in a way that you know, whereas Republicans and Democrats are more balanced. But you know, but the, but the underlying principle of put people on the same team 
and have them succeed together and share the benefits. I think that's universal. And so we're going to see see how far we can go. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for the work you've done as a philosopher and as a scientist, but as somebody, somebody who's deeply anxious about where we are as a nation, maybe as a world, I really hope you continue to do this powerful work in the context of a practitioner, because it's certainly what we need. Uh, well, thank you so much. And I should say the admiration is very much mutual. I, I look at the work you've done, you know, starting as the Internet's favorite lawyer, as you've been <laughs> called, and things you've done since, and, you know, taking your knowledge and skills and really applying them for for our, our shared common good. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very inspiring to me. So as someone who's, you know, it's been a long journey to try to do stuff in the world. And I look to people like you to say, okay, this, this can work if you, if you get it right. I'm sure it will with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for oh, talking thank to you. us. All right. Oh, thank you. This has been the 18th episode of season five of the podcast, Another Way, produced by Equal Citizens and literally made by hand by Josh Elstro of Elstro Productions. Check us out at EqualCitizens.us. Give us your thoughts. Give us your feedback. Save your hate. Not that we get much, but, you know, doesn't pay. And share this, if you can, with everybody you think should hear these ideas. And also, of course, we're grateful for your supports. What I do, I do pro bono. But we have a team that needs to earn a living, and everything you donate to Equal Citizens helps them keep going here. Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. Mm-hmm.